News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Busy day in Ottawa yesterday. Lots of intrigue going around. Does the Prime Minister support the Finance Minister? What is going on there? We had Federal Employment Minister Carla Qualtro testifying at the Finance Committee, and that all has to do with the WE charity. Let's get caught up to date. Our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson joins us now for more on all of this. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning. Let's start with the uh, Bill Morneau story here. What is going on with the relationship between the Finance Minister and the Prime Minister? Well, great question. Uh, there was a report yesterday morning in the Globe Mail that was saying that the finance minister's job could be in jeopardy after he and the prime minister's office ha- had come into disagreement over uh, a number of issues, but primarily what had happened with the WE charity and the decision to put uh, this youth program through the charity that has now drawn so much attention. Now, this story came out early in the morning, but it wasn't until around 2.30 p.m. that we actually heard from the Prime Minister's office saying that they do support Bill Morneau. Uh, that, that's a, a number of hours a gap and a lot of people in Ottawa kind of went, huh, it's interesting uh, that was not an yeah. immediate response saying they support Bill Morneau. Uh, they came out and said that Prime Minister fully supports him, uh, but I can tell you there's a lot of people around Ottawa who think that his days are numbered in this job at this point. That is just kind of one too many mistakes by Bill Morneau, one too many clashes with the Prime Minister's office. He's been calling around, I'm told, trying to drum up support hasn't found it that successful so mm. far so we'll see where that goes he could still hold on to his job but certainly uh, a lot of folks around town here think that it is potentially in jeopardy justin trudeau may be looking for a cabinet shuffle before we head into a potential second wave of coronavirus looking to shore up any weak points in his cabinet and if he thinks bill morneau is one of those he could be out and then on top of that pair it with the fact that we've been hearing all those rumors about how mark carney has actually been the one giving the Prime Minister financial advice to get through the coronavirus con- uh, right. conflict that we've been in. Uh, and that sort of, that looks to me like potentially two interesting trial balloons going up at the same time. So do you think this went sour because of the revelations of uh, Bill Morneau's close ties with the Wee charity that seemed to come out of the blue to everybody? I, I think that's part of it. I mean, the fact that he sat around the cabinet table and as far as we were aware, did not disclose that his daughter worked at this charity. I mean, that's a very yeah. close family relationship to not say, you know what? Uh, yes, this is a financial program, but I think I need to step away because I have a direct family conflict here, or at least to declare that. Uh, and then the prime minister's office was not happy when they found out that he had somehow forgotten to repay $41,000 in trips. Uh, you know, this, they were already under criticism. And then it comes out that uh, there's this missing money. And, and, you know, your average Canadian takes a look at this and thinks, you know, I couldn't lose $410 without noticing it. How do you lose $41,000 and not notice you didn't pay it back or have that charity say, hey, uh, you didn't pay this money back to us. So that really sort of, I think, ratcheted things up in an already sensitive situation, in a situation where it appears the Prime Minister was already starting to turn outward and elsewhere for financial advice other than from his own finance minister. So what happened yesterday then with the Finance Committee, the hearing there, Carla Qualtro was testifying? Carla Qualtro was testifying, so was Bargdish Chagger. Nothing, you know, massively groundbreaking that came out of that, but we just continued to hear it seemed to be more lack of awareness and also from the, the top bureaucrat in Canada, uh, the clerk of the Privy Council, who said that he really couldn't account for 
why it was that there wasn't more due diligence done on wheat, on, on whether or not they had the ability to administer this program. Uh, neither he nor Bargdash Chagar seemed to know whether or not we had in fact returned the money the federal government had given them, the $30 million. We, by the way, gave a statement to Global News later in the day saying they have returned $22 million of the $30 million and they're waiting for the federal government to accept the other $8 million. Uh, but those seem like some pretty basic facts, like what yeah. kind of due diligence was done, etc. The big thing we're really waiting on at this point is 5,000 pages of documents that they're going through right now redacting with lawyers that will be publicly released by the committee that will show how the decision was made. And that's the first time we're really going to get some objective insight into why we, how we, when, who was involved, who knew what. Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, when those will come down as anyone's guess. The committee has had them since Saturday, um, but they're obviously going through this with a very fine tooth comb. And, uh, you know, we're all kind of dancing around in anticipation, waiting to get our hands on these documents. It does make you wonder, though, as you pointed out, what are all these people doing sitting around the cabinet table if nobody seems to know exactly where the background came from or how the decision was made? Well, and this is one of the big questions that's coming up. And I mean, they know that that Justin Trudeau actually says that he raised that he had some concerns. And as a result, um, this decision was put off by two weeks. And the clerk of the Privy Council kind of said he didn't really know what that due diligence entailed. And it doesn't appear he at least was aware of any follow up on the bureaucratic side to look into that. Mind you, it is up to politicians to disclose conflicts of interest. It's not up to the civil service yeah. to determine that for them. Uh, but it sort of raises these questions. And it's questions Trudeau has faced before about how he manages his cap about how decisions are made, about accountability, about when there could be a potential ethics conflict. How carefully are they looking at these things in advance? How much due diligence is really being done to determine why we was the only charity that could do this? Uh, and then, it, you know, there, there seemed to be confusion over why it was one branch of the charity, the one with the real estate holdings, right. and not the other. Well, we recommended it. Okay, well, why? did you look into why? <laughs> uh, well, it's a liability issue. I mean, all these questions where you kind of go, well, did anyone dig a little deeper on the surface yeah. here and ask some questions? So bizarre. Still so bizarre. Uh, Mercedes, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. That's Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief, right? The more questions, the more answers that seem to come along, the more questions we seem to have. Well, good morning, everybody, on this Wednesday morning. Nice and sunny out there today, and we'll have more on your weather and traffic throughout the show. Right now, though, we're going to talk about New Zealand. We know that with all this COVID-19 stuff, that New Zealand seems to be a place that has done really well. All over the world, people have been impressed by the fact that New Zealand went more than 100 days. That's like more than three months with no new cases of COVID-19. So it really seemed like they had stomped this thing out, that they had found a way to do that. And pretty much in New Zealand, life was returning to a near normal state of affairs there. I mean, they were even holding sporting events at one point. They had thousands of people in attendance. But as always with this virus, it seems, that came to a screeching halt after a family of four in Auckland tested positive for the virus and health officials are still trying to figure out exactly where they might have gotten it from. So as a result, the country immediately went from an alert level one to an alert level three. That's a big change for a lot of people. So to find out more, our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to microbiologist Dr. Susie Wills from the University of Auckland. What do we know about how this family may have been exposed to the virus? So at the moment, we don't know very much. Um, the preliminary um, contact tracing has suggested there's no link with overseas travel or um, link with uh, anyone who works at the border or in managed isolation. Uh, so that's what's really worrying, um, and they'll be um, d digging more deeply into that um, over the next few days. 
Is this unheard of? It seems strange for the virus to just sort of pop up, for there to just be a case, you know, seemingly organically. Has something like this been recorded before? So there's a couple of ways it might have happened. So it could be a uh, essentially a sort of like a second um, in the chain of transmission so that they have had a contact with somebody who has had contact with someone to do with managed isolation. Um, another thing that we don't talk about very much is that um, so our managed isolation is 14 days, which is the same in, in most other countries. And um, there are a small number of people who can incubate the virus for a little bit longer than that. So that could be a potential way as somebody who's been through managed isolation and has tested negative and then has maybe become um, positive um, you know, at some later point. So that's quite rare, uh, but that's a, a possibility. So um, we're just going to have to wait and see what happens with the testing. And um, they'll be sequencing the virus as well. So that might also give us some clue, uh, you know, knowing, um, knowing that the virus is changing as it's moving around the world, that sort of will help. Uh, and then the pop-up... Um, a sort of pop-up testing booth that they're doing everywhere and um, let's see if there are any other uh, cases that um, we didn't know about either. And it was uh, due to testing, I suppose, that this family was even known to be positive with the virus, correct? Well, it's just fantastic that they, you know, um, they stepped up and uh, and asked to get tested, right? I mean, this is the thing that we have been uh, asking New Zealanders to do. Um, you know, we're all a bit complacent because we've been at sort of almost like back to normal. So it's really great that they didn't ignore the symptoms um, and that they called up and got tested. And, and this is how we find, you know, what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. So now that you've gone up into a higher alert level as a result of this family testing positive for COVID-19, can we just go back a short a short while ago when your alert level was very low? We're not quite experiencing that here in British Columbia. So I'm curious, what was daily life like for you? Yeah, so um, here in New Zealand, we've been at alert level one, which has really been kind of back to normal, but except uh, not going overseas and not having any uh, overseas tourists here. So we've been, you know, having large gatherings, going to cinema, restaurants, bars, um, all of those kinds of things, and not wearing any masks, not doing any physical distancing, um, none of that sort of stuff. Uh, now, Auckland is at alert level three, so this is a very, uh, uh, not our strictest um, alert level, but it is pretty strict, so everybody who... Uh, isn't an essential worker is basically to stay home. Um, this is sort of described as our uh, lockdown but with takeaway. So um, at our strictest uh, alert level, um, only those who are essential workers are allowed to work, and that's a very uh, defined. Um, at this level, uh, where uh, businesses that offer takeaways are allowed to open, providing the people who work there can um, physically distance. Uh, and then the other thing that's different um, this time around is also the wearing of masks. So we didn't have that at our original um, alert levels, and now uh, masks have been brought in. And then the rest of the country um, is at alert level two. So that is uh, basically there's now a cap on group sizes, uh, gathering sizes of 100, um, and people are asked to wear masks um, if they can't do um, physical distancing. Your government's responded really quickly to all of this. Your Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, announcing that Auckland will be moving to that level three alert until uh, at least Friday, as, as we've discussed. Your government's clearly acted very swiftly here to address this problem. So New Zealand has this elimination strategy, which the Prime Minister has talked about um, from the very beginning, which is that we will act fast and we will act hard. So at the very first cases of community transmission, she has moved us into the sort of temporary, um, uh, moving up the alert level and massively ramped up the, uh, the community testing um, for the virus. 
what we're watching at the moment overseas, um, especially in Australia, is that if you delay at all, um, you end up getting exponential spread of the virus. So they took five weeks to go um, from when they started their um, latest outbreak uh, to putting in the kind of restrictions that we've put in after four cases. Um, and they're, you know, over the last week have seen over 100 people die. So we do not want that to happen here in New Zealand. And that's why the move really um, fast and hard. And, you know, it's all about restricting our movements while they aren't aware, you know, while they're trying to find out what is going on with this um, family, where they got the virus. Uh, so we'll find out on Friday whether we're going to be staying in these restrictions for longer, uh, and that will all depend on whether they can um, find the source of the infection for the family. Here in Canada, we've certainly been in awe of where you in New Zealand are with the virus or have been with the virus. Our sports are just getting started again. We're playing hockey in the middle of August with no one in the arena. But when you watch New Zealand rugby on TV, you see an arena full of people. And I know that this weekend, there's supposed to be a really big sold out rugby match with 43,000 people in attendance. What will happen to those sporting events that were previously happening? I assume those will also be put on hold? Yeah, so um, basically around the country, you know, restriction of 100 people at a gathering. So that would mean all sports matches and all of those kinds of things will uh, will be postponed. Um, the question is whether, uh, so this is just till Friday, and the question is what's going to happen on Friday. Um, I suspect we will probably uh, stay um, under these restrictions for a little longer. I mean, I'm supposed to be going to a conference uh, at a different part of the country, um, and uh, so that so that conference is now being moved online. I can't even leave Auckland uh, tomorrow, so yeah, it's going to be very, very disruptive. But really important because we do not want, you know, um, an escalation in the number of cases. Yeah, I suppose if anyone's going to take these measures seriously, it's going to be a conference of microbiologists. <laughs> It's their kind of continuing medical education thing, you know, how they do this like once a year. So the last thing we need is all of our GPs from around the South Island basically being exposed to COVID-19. That would be an absolute disaster. Yeah, not not good there for sure. All right, that is microbiologist Dr. Susie Wells from the University of Auckland talking about the, I know it's small, increase in cases in New Zealand, but still very significant given that they went more than 100 days without having a single case. So we wanted to spend some time today talking about going back to school for a couple of weeks now. It's been a very hot topic of discussion, people unhappy with what the province had put forward as their plan. And now we're hearing that, you know what, they're going to tinker with this thing big time. They're going to push back the date. Uh, but still, it, I think what it shows is the huge level of concern and anxiety that there is around this. So we're joined now by Nikki Reitmeyer to talk more about that this morning. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, I think there was so much anxiety surrounding what exactly back to school was going to look like that the province really had no choice but to to go back to the drawing board and, and relook at what their plan was going to be as they moved forward into the school year. And that means a slight delay. So we had the education minister, Rob Fleming, say yesterday that essentially the new idea is to get staff back together again. So he said, you know, whether it's support staff, whether it's teachers and administrators, and then they're going to finalize how school operations are going to work. He said they're going to go through this thorough review of what the CDC health and safety guidelines are, and then they're going to start to accept students back later in the first week of school because it was supposed to start September 8th. So now it's going to be pushed back maybe by a few days, it sounds like, until they can kind of get their ducks in a row, 
figure out what the plan is going to be, and then they'll start transitioning kids back again. Right. I know that's a relief for a lot of parents out there. I'm sure for school boards too, because they must have thought, well, this is a huge plan that we have to put together. Yeah, we'd heard so much vocal opposition to going back to school for September 8th. I'm sure there's some organizations that would like to see this pushed even further. But, you know, at least by a few days, I'm sure we'll appease some organizations who were just hoping for more organization going back to school again. I mean, the BC Teachers Federation and BC Principals and Vice Principals Association, they had both been asking for a delay to the start of the school year, hoping for, you know, a a bit more organization, a bit more detail into how the school year would be operating. I know a lot of people were calling for masks, uh, as we've been seeing in other provinces and weren't getting that as well. So there was uh, a lot of vocal opposition to going back September 8th. I would be very curious to hear from parents and teachers today, though, if they think that delaying it by a couple days is enough, if they want to see it delayed more, or on the other hand, if you don't agree with this at all if you want to get your kid back into school again. Exactly. Too. What's happening in other provinces? Like, what are they doing there Comparis- comparatively? Yeah, so our neighbors just next door in Alberta, they're aiming to go back for the start of the school year starting September 2nd. So they're still shooting for that early September start right. date to get kids back in the door. They have a rule, though, that the kids will have to wear masks. And as a very interesting side note to this story, so because the kids have to wear masks, they're going to be supplying students with masks. And it's costing them millions of dollars. Uh, They're making 1.7 million masks. It's costing a total of $4.2 million. I guess this is just the cost of business these days, though, when we're dealing with the pandemic and getting kids back to school safely again. But they contracted out the the creation of those masks to two companies. So one company is called IFR, which is an Alberta-based company. They'll be doing 10% of the masks. The other 90% have been contracted out to Old Navy. What? Yeah, I know. That's what I thought too. When I saw that, I thought, what? Old Navy? Yeah, like the big American store, or Old Navy. I mean, we all know Old Navy. They're going to be making 90% of the masks for Alberta hey, kids. whatever as works. They go back to school. If that's what it's going to take to get like, you know, hundreds of thousands of masks, I guess that's what it's going to take. I, I guess that's what you got to do, right? Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, if we look over at what Ontario is doing right now, they are letting parents decide whether or not they oh. want to send their kids back to school. I, I thought this was quite interesting as well, because it was some of the controversy that we'd been hearing here from parents. So I'm saying, you know, maybe I'm not comfortable sending my kids back. We kind of did that in June, though. Do you know what I mean? Like they, all these other provinces did not send kids back to school in June. We did. And that option mm. of parents can decide, we did that back at, back in June, essentially. We did. And some people still wanting it to happen in September. So, you know, we have gone through that process before. And you're right. There was other provinces that, you know, either kids went back or, you know, it was delayed or so forth. But they'll be carrying right. that model in Ontario on through September. So you have to let, essentially, if you're a parent, you have to let the Toronto District School Board know if your kid is going to be enrolled in class or if your kid's going to be doing it online. They said, look, once you make up your mind, you've made up your mind. There's not a lot of switching that can be done in between. But it's kind of interesting just to take a peek at what some of the other provinces are doing and how they're addressing this. Because it's not easy anywhere. It's not easy for any government. It's not. But we're running a poll on this this morning on Twitter, which you can find at CKNW. I've also retweeted it. So it's at SimiSarah980. We've got more than 500 votes on this. Yeah, more than 500 votes already. We asked you know, as a parent, how do you feel about the start of the school year in BC being pushed back past September 8th? So 43% said, I'm happy to hear it. 
21% said, I don't really know how I feel. 17% saying, I'm really disappointed. And then 19% saying, look, just cancel in-class learning altogether. So you can really? vote online on our Twitter. Uh, and of course, call the buzz line as well, 604-331-BUZZ, and let us know what your thoughts are on this, whether you're a teacher, a parent, or even a student. Right. Sounds like a plan. We're going to be talking more about it. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks, Simi. Let's talk about real estate this morning, shall we? Because some of those numbers out of the month of July were surprising. Real estate market actually showed quite a rebound. Numbers actually improving year over year, let alone month after month, right? So we are seeing a bit of a return to potentially pre-COVID levels when you look at the greater Vancouver area. But you know what? In the Okanagan, they're actually seeing a massive increase over July of last year. Yeah, a huge improvement, actually. So we wanted to talk more about this. So joining us this morning is Luke Turi, Executive Vice President at Mission Group. Mission Group is developing a property in the Okanagan, and we'll find out what is going on there. Luke, thank you very much for being here. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Amy. What are you seeing in the Okanagan that clearly is making it so attractive right now, real estate-wise? Yeah, I mean, it, it really is an exciting time to be in Kelowna, even given what's uh, kind of going on in the world. And and Kelowna's really you know, no longer been, uh, you know, a great place to visit, which of course it is. And I'm sure many of your listeners have, uh, you know, maybe had a summer vacation in Kelowna. But there's been a real urban transformation that's been happening in the past few years. And I think a lot of that is due to kind of the, the lifestyle and quality of life factors that have become more and more important, whether people are uh, choosing to work remotely, or they're able uh, to commute in that way. But there's also just uh, uh, a wonderful uh, entrepreneurial spirit and energy, the tech sector uh, investment from uh, the University of British Columbia and other post-secondary institutions. Uh, it's, it's really changing the game here in Kelowna. So you mentioned working remotely there. I wonder how much of that has to do with COVID-19 and people deciding, I don't need to live in the same city where I work. Yeah, I mean, that's a, been a very interesting trend these days. You see that when people don't have to make their based uh, on where they have to commute or their commuting times, and you have that flexibility, I mean, if you could choose where you'd live not based on that, I, I think we'd all agree you'd want to focus on the type of quality of life factors. I mean, the, out, the outdoor amenity in Kelowna is fantastic. I mean, you're, you're 15 minutes from... Uh, from the mountains, you're right here on the lake, the, the ski hills, the wineries, the golf courses, it, it goes on and on. And uh, the ability to do that while still being a few hours down the highway uh, from Vancouver. And then, of course, uh, with the remote working lifestyle, we, we have definitely seen a, a shift in that way of thinking. Oh, so what is, are there particular projects going on in the Okanagan right now, too, that make demand increase? Yeah, there, there's actually uh, quite a bit of interest going on downtown. Uh, we've been very invested, uh, Mission Group, over the past few years in uh, kind of this urban transformation downtown. We're working on a project called Bernard Block, which is an urban village right on the, the main street of downtown, a few blocks from Lake Okanagan. And uh, so there's these, uh, you know, the, the level of sophistication in terms of the real estate world that uh, you might, listeners might know in the Lower Mainland very, very modern concrete condominiums uh, and office spaces, but you're doing that at a much higher value uh, for your dollar. And of course, you're right on Okanagan Lake in, in beautiful Kelowna. Right. And that UBC Kelowna campus is just getting bigger and bigger too, isn't it? Yeah, that's been very interesting. Certainly, uh, 2005 is when UBC started the Okanagan campus here. We have over 20,000 post-secondary students between Okanagan College and UBC Okanagan and Kelowna. 
but UBC Okanagan just recently announced a downtown campus. We're actually a development partner with them. And so they, they've decided that they want to uh, make a presence in downtown Kelowna. And I think they, they too see the opportunity that uh, the downtown of Kelowna in particular presents in, uh, in the trajectory that it's on. And so there's going to be an amazing world-class uh, academic space also uh, as part of this, this growth story. So it's very cool to see, and it's a wonderful as an investment opportunity in Kelowna. Oh, but what does this mean for prices, Luke? Yeah, and I think that's been when when you add up all of the the lifestyle factors and the quality of life and some of these trends that I think that people are looking more towards uh, high amenity mid sized cities, and then you look at the value of the dollar uh, compared to the more lower mainland, you can kind of see why the trend is starting to gain momentum. And we we have you know the majority of these homes are all lake views, and you have you know homes in the mid two thousands up to a lot of them in the kind of the the low five hundreds, the low six hundred thousands, all the way through uh, one bedrooms to two two bedroom homes. And so those prices, comparatively to what you know might be used to in the lower mainland, uh, the, the value is a is a wonderful opportunity. Oh, well, certainly interesting times for real estate, Luke. Thanks so much for your time. Timmy, I'm more than happy to join you. Thank you. That's Luke Turry, the executive vice president at Mission Group. They're developing quite a bit of property in the Okanagan, uh, like things like that new downtown UBC Kelowna campus. They've got more interest from buyers who don't necessarily want to work in that area, but can work remotely. So now they want to live kind of outside of the cities or they want to do the commute, whatever the case may be. I can see that happening actually for a lot of uh, smaller communities around the province. I'm sure it's something that people have discussed. Go somewhere where you can afford to actually have a, a nice place and some space and all of that and just work from home as people have been doing already for the last few months. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. We'll have to watch prices carefully, though, to see what happens, uh, particularly in that Okanagan area where sales are up something like 50% July over uh, July 2020 versus July 2019. So our big discussion today has to do with getting the kids back to school. I know it was a big relief for a lot of parents out there when they heard, and teachers too, when they heard yesterday that the provincial government is backpedaling on that plan to get kids in the classroom for September the 8th. Except now it's like, well, when are they going to go back? What is the parameter here that we are working with? Good question. Listen to Education Minister Rob Fleming yesterday. We're working through the steering committee uh, that uh, is composed of all of the K-12 stakeholders to have a coordinated uh, approach on returning to school in recognition that uh, starting up school safely in a pandemic year requires some additional uh, scheduling logistical concerns and, and operations. So really the idea is to get uh, staff back together, whether it's uh, support staff, uh, teachers and administrators, uh, to uh, finalize how the school operations are going to work, uh, a thorough review of the BC Centre for Disease Control uh, guidelines, and then to accept uh, uh, students back later in the uh, in the first week of school. We'll, those discussions are ongoing, and we want to respect the uh, advice that we're getting from uh, organizations like the BC Teachers Federation, QPBC, Superintendents Association, uh, and principals and vice principals, among others. So uh, that is uh, something that's uh, under discussion right now with the uh, steering committee that we have for the uh, overall K-12 restart, and we'll have something to say after we've uh, considered that advice. 
Okay, so remember the BC Teachers Federation had pushed back immediately when it was originally announced that everybody would be going back to school on September the 8th. BC principals and vice principals, well, we talked to them right here on the show and they said they wanted a more flexible approach. So we thought, let's get some more reaction to how this is all unfolding. So joining us now is BC Liberal Education critic Dan Davies. Thank you very much for being here. Hey, good morning, Timmy. Now, what you obviously this is something that we had talked to you about before. You thought this needed to be more flexible. What do you think about what happened yesterday? Well, I think there there probably is quite a bit of relief uh, now that we are looking at a little bit flex, or a little bit of flexibility for uh, students to be back in in the classroom. Uh, we we don't know for sure now when uh, students will actually be in the class. We we know that uh, staff will be in the, the classroom or into the schools on the eighth. Um, but yeah, no, it is it is good that uh, that this has happened, and uh, you know, like I say, I, I hosted a town hall yesterday, and I, I know that yeah. there was a lot of relief uh, from people on that. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I know you'd hosted that, so what were you hearing from people? Oh my goodness, how long do we got? <laughs> you know, <laughs> there there was uh, there was a lot of comments. Uh, we had about 170 people uh, on the call yesterday. Um, you know, and I, I, I think you know one of the, the the themes that we heard throughout is the the immense anxiety. Uh, that uh, families are feeling right now over this, and and, and rightly so. Uh, you know, we were hoping to uh, see kind of a comprehensive plan on July the uh, 29th. Uh, unfortunately, we, we didn't see that. Um, the the ministry announced uh, some budget dollars attached to it, which, uh, you know, certainly were important. Uh, talked about the cohort and then handed uh, everything else off to the uh, individual school districts uh, to come up with a plan for August 20. And uh, I, I know we heard from parents last night saying August 26th, that uh, doesn't give a lot of time for organizing yeah. work schedules and, you know, daycare as needed, uh, you know, understanding what is daycare even going to look like. There's you know, a shortage of it. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of people that uh, are immunocompromised, uh, you know, whether it's the child or someone that lives at home, a parent, um, you know, and, and uh you know, severe anxiety around, you know, putting my, you know, they've, they've had small bubbles throughout this entire pandemic, hmm. and now they are going into 60 or 120 um, uh, people, and, and what are the, you know, what's going to happen if they, they bring something home um, when they're asymptomatic and still carrying the virus? So there, there was a, an incredible amount of anxiety, and, and, uh, um, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of options for, for those uh, families. No, there doesn't. So now that they've kind of hit pause and they're gathering more information, what advice would you give the government at this point about the best way to move forward? Well, listen to the uh, to the families. Um, you know, there's there's been uh, and, and you know it's good to hear that the minister is listening to the stakeholders. Um, but uh, like I say, the, uh, I mean, I know that the minister has been written a lot of letters because I've been cc'd in them. Um, and uh, a lot of those have uh, a lot of real concerns. I mean, you know, we, we uh, you know, I just mentioned about the uh, people that have uh, compromised immunity. Yeah, uh, they're you know they're they're basically being told, well, you can homeschool. Well, right. then they go to they go to the homes or they go to the uh, distant learning, and uh, of course, people are going there. They're all full. Yeah. So and and the the independent distributed learning. Well. They just cut twelve million dollars out of that in May. So I mean, I mean that the options, even if they're being given, aren't uh, aren't that great. Do you think we do have to push ahead though? That there has to be some form of this happening in September. We've got to get some kids back yeah. in school. Yeah, you know, and and I, I think everybody agrees it's 
it's uh, it's it's absolutely important that uh, that our kids are learning. Uh, it's important that our kids. Uh, I mean, I'm a father of two children, uh, former school teacher myself. Uh, you know, it's it's it is it's absolutely critical that uh, that kids get this social interaction. But we need to balance it uh, with the most important factor, and that's safety. Uh, is it safe for the kids? Is it safe for staff to be in the schools? And uh, that's the fine balancing act that has to be done. Every everything needs to be. Uh, uh, having that focus. And, and uh, like I say, parents don't feel that they've seen that yet. All right, we'll be talking more about it. Thank you very much for your time. Have a fantastic day, Simi. You too. That's Dan Davies, BC Liberal Education Critic. Glad to hear the government has pressed pause on this and is rethinking it. He's heard a lot of concerns, though, from families and from teachers as well. Let's also talk about the teacher reaction to this. Joining us now is Stephen Price, teacher and education columnist. Stephen, thank you for being here. Thank you, Simi. You must also be happy to hear that they've decided to push this back a little bit. Yeah, I was I was glad to hear that we have a little bit of time. Um, but uh, like always, it seems that there's there's just not enough there for us to get what uh, the job done that we need to get done. Uh, with the minister saying it'll definitely be the first week back sometime, that tells me right. it's going to be you know Wednesday or Thursday, um, and that'll give us enough time to get you know, tape on the floors to tell the kids which direction they're going and and talk through as a staff sort of what the basics are. Um, But there's a huge, huge design challenge that we're all facing as teachers, and and there isn't time being given for that. And what is that design challenge? Well, we now have to redesign school. Um, Most high school teachers will probably have new courses because of the shuffling of, uh, of how schools work with the cohorts. We have now space constraints, trying to ensure distancing in a space where there are really not a lot of options to do that distancing. Um, we have funding constraints. The government has funded clean surfaces and clean hands, but they haven't actually funded any uh, any money to, for example, uh, sort out a student with special needs who who maybe needs their own space, as Dr. Henry recommended for a student who is immunocompromised. There are zero dollars in the budget for right. for serving that student. Um, so those are some of the design constraints that, that actually necessitate a real big redesign of how we work as teachers. I wonder, would, would the more funding really help, though? But I was thinking as well about teachers. A lot of them, we've heard that, you know, because there won't be any international students this year, there could be teacher layoffs. Would more funding help to keep those teachers and perhaps spread out some of the students a bit more? Well, that's exactly it, right? So the the superintendents, I have so much sympathy for them because they're trying to solve problems uh, in a very unsure uh, environment. They don't know what their budget will actually be until September 30th when we see if parents have faith in the plan and have sent their kids back to school, as well as the international students. And so, so they're making very conservative design decisions, which is understandable. They don't want to run a deficit. Um, and those drive what we do in classes and the quality of the decisions we're making around this plan. Um, and so if we knew that there was funding there to put out the fires that, that are created by the challenges, um, then we would be able to, to do a much better job of MacGyvering this school year. MacGyvering the school year. That's a good way to put it. Uh, what about the districts? Because we know now it is le- a lot of this is left up to the districts to deal with. What are you hearing from some of those areas? Um, well, I think uh, we don't have a lot of information yet as teachers. They are doing a ton of work, I know, um, to get things organized and, and get communications out to teachers. Uh, we've just been told to sort of hang tight and, and, and send them lots of good thoughts, which I am. <laughs> okay, that helps too, right? Every little bit helps. I know that everybody's been preaching patience in this as well, but do you find that just the anxiety, I think, is getting to a lot of parents and teachers here? 
For sure. And, and I'll give you an example. So I have a friend who's a CEO of, of a tech company locally. And, uh, and his, he's got three senior staff with kids who are critical to his, his business uh, that are not comfortable with the plan as it is. And so he isn't able to get the economy going until his staff have faith in the education plan. And based on the design, which was really driven by funding constraints, um, based on that on, on that design, they are not comfortable sending their kids back to school in September, and he's not sure how his business is right. gonna is going to ramp up again. So, Stephen, what would you like to see happen here? They've said they're paused and they said they're listening. What do you want to tell them? Well, uh, we need the money to actually do the resources. So, if you look at nurses, they're getting a five dollar an hour COVID bonus right now. Um, a nurse on, 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 who works on Labor Day gets two and a half times their wage. There's a number of, of things that, uh, that we're doing for healthcare to kind of infuse some dollars to solve some problems. And I don't need a, a raise. I just need some help. So uh, extra staff, keep those staff you're laying off. Uh, extra time. If you can give us any extra time to do that planning, and that doesn't necessarily mean keeping kids at home. That could mean extra prep time for teachers during the school day to kind of catch up on the design challenge they're doing. Um, all of those resourcing pieces uh, would help so much, even if we're still going to have classes of 30. All right, we'll see what happens. Stephen, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you, Simi. That's Stephen Price, teacher and education columnist, uh, giving his thoughts on the delayed return to school that we heard is coming forward. We heard that you know late yesterday afternoon from the province. I should mention here as well, Premier John Horgan has a media availability coming up at 1 o'clock this afternoon. It's usually his weekly availability, but you can bet that he is going to be talking about this. It sounds like he's going to be joined by Health Minister Adrian Dix and Dr. Bonnie Henry, so we'll get an update on COVID-19 as well. But back to school question really at the top of the list. Whether you have children, whether you're working at a company where other people have children, it affects everybody. So has summer been the easy part of the pandemic? I mean, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, sure, more people are outdoors. Uh, you know, people are kind of spreading themselves out in the outdoors, which is better. But when winter comes, is that going to be a problem or will more people stay indoors and therefore not sit on the patio and drink and not socially distance? Like, I'm not sure which one might be better. But there is a concern that when fall and winter hit and people start potentially socializing indoors more, that we could have a problem. So we thought, let's talk about that. Tim Sly is with us now, epidemiologist and professor emeritus at Ryerson University. Tim, thank you for being here. Hi, Sammy. How are you doing? I am good, thank you. Do, do you think fall and winter are going to be a bigger concern than summer? Well, people have been talking about a seasonality for COVID, but there's really no evidence that it follows the influenza pattern where we know that has a, an increase in the winter months and it goes down in the summer. No indication that that's going to happen here at all. But what there is an indication of is that it's more of a behavioral uh, wave we can expect. In other words, it's what actually people are doing. So as you say, it, it, we're coming in out of the park, uh, off the patio, and we're going indoors now into the restaurant, up, cozy up to the bar, ordering a couple of more beers. It's what we're doing with each other and more people in limited number of space. Right, I guess, because that's what we're seeing right now, a lot of socializing, right? And as we heard, I think it was the British police say, drunk people aren't very good at physically distancing. Are we worried that they're just then going to move those parties indoors or maybe they won't have those parties? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's difficult to imagine not having those uh, gatherings because, uh, you know, it's all very well on the patio and the weather's nice. 
for when it gets a bit chilly. Uh, and I've even heard suggestions we should bring school children outside more and have more lessons outside. Well, that sounds very good when you're in the middle of August, but go to February when it's, you know, at least here in Toronto, it would be minus 23 or something like that, and the wind's blowing. I don't think grade fives are going to spend many more than a few minutes outside in that kind of temperature. So it's a bit unrealistic. Yep, we will be seeing people gathering together, more human beings per cubic meter of indoor space. The windows will be closed, of course. And, uh, you know, we've got a fatigue, too. I mean, the media people like you and uh, me as well, we've been talking about yeah. this now for months. How many thousands of times have they heard it? It's, it's, a, it's like water on a duck's back now. So we've got to regenerate that awareness. It hasn't really gone away at all. So how should we approach this then? Like, we don't know. It's still a great big unknown. So how do you warn people about something? We're not quite sure how this is going to go. Well, out of sight, out of mind, right? I mean, they don't see it, and they've forgotten it, and we don't see what's going on inside of an ICU. I think somebody suggested even having full-length color pictures inside every bus shelter of uh, some poor soul in an ICU bed with a ventilator stuck in his throat and the other, other tubes in every orifice saying, you know, this hasn't gone away. Don't forget 97, 98% of the entire population of Canada is completely susceptible to this. No protection at all. And the virus, last time we looked, isn't getting any weaker. It hasn't gone anywhere. So it's much like the, the forest floor. You know, everything's dry, right. tender, ready to go up. It just takes one person to throw a match down there and boof, off, away we go. Okay, well that sounds scary when you put it that way, Tim. So what what should we be preparing ourselves for? What should we be thinking about heading towards a cooler season? Well, as, we, as we've been getting back to work, back onto the uh, transit systems, back to the offices and so on, remember, as that kind of liberation or freedom takes place, we've got to then ramp up the individual person-to-person care and attention. Now, if you're living in the part of Canada where there's hardly any cases, you know, you can relax a bit more. But, but we've got to be aware that if it is moving through the community, then it's going to move very rapidly where people are getting close together. So we don't look at the number of cases. That's notoriously unreliable. We look at the number of uh, or the proportion of the tests that come back as positive. So it doesn't matter whether you took 100 tests or 1,000 tests. It's the, it's the percentage that come back positive. And it, for the whole of Canada, that's about one, about 2.3%, 2.4%. Ontario is down less than 1%. BC was less than 1% until about two weeks ago. I think it may be slightly higher now, but we've got to keep that figure down. It means there's less movement in the right. community. Just as a comparison, United States, they're frequently more than 20%. There's a couple of states more than 25% Ooh. of the tests come back positive. Okay, so still, as you point out, a lot of work to do. Tim, thanks so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Simi. Stay safe. You too. That's Tim Sly, epidemiologist, professor emeritus at Ryerson University, uh, saying he's a little concerned about what's going to happen this fall and winter as the weather gets colder, knowing that so many people are still susceptible to this virus. And we don't know how the virus is going to behave once people start spending more time indoors and potentially in closer quarters with other people. Still lots of concerns out there. Well, we wanted to talk more about a story that Vaughn uh, discussed earlier. He was talking about this uh, Site C situation and a report that came out just this morning from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Well, Ben Parfit joins us now, a policy analyst with the CCPA, to talk about that. Ben, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. So tell me what it is that you took a look at with this report. 
Well, what we did was we uh, looked at um, studies that have been done uh, by geoscientists and earth scientists in northeast British Columbia, where they had attempted to quantify exactly how many earthquakes were occurring in the region out of a belief that the uh, numbers reported by uh, NRCAN uh, or Natural Resources Canada didn't fully uh, uh, cover the uh, number of earthquakes that were occurring. So we took the information from those recent studies and a very uh, uh, experienced mapper plotted all of those earthquakes onto a map. And what they show is that in 2017 and 2018 alone, there were more than 6,500 earthquakes uh, in a very sensitive zone that includes uh, the Site C dam. That number uh, compares with only 71 earthquakes as reported in the NRCAN database. So clearly there are a lot more earthquakes occurring when you look at the much uh, larger network of uh, seismographs or earthquake monitoring uh, equipment in northeast BC. And unfortunately, a very troubling number of these earthquakes are occurring in this very sensitive zone where scientists have independently warned the Provincial Oil and Gas Commission there are underlying faults that can become critically stressed during fracking operations. And it turns out that these earthquakes, uh, this uh, intense cluster of earthquakes is occurring in a very active zone that is being fracked by natural gas companies, and those fracking operations are triggering earthquakes, including a 4.5 magnitude event in November 18 that shook the ground with considerable force at the Site C construction site and resulted in the evacuation of workers from that site in November of 2018. Wow. So I guess it doesn't surprise you then when you hear about all the stability problems now that the Site C area is having. Well, yeah, I mean, I think what is very important for people to understand is from the get-go, the Site C project um, was uh, deemed by many to be being built in an area that was geologically fraught. You only have to be on the river or spend time in the River Valley to see evidence of numerous slides. Um, It's important to remember that there was a significant landslide uh, two years ago, just before the 4.5 magnitude event, two months before it, uh, that wiped out the only road leading into and out of the community of Old Fort, which is just downstream of the, south, of the Site C site. This is an area that has experienced significant um, issues uh, in the past. Uh, there was a bridge collapse in 1957 at Taylor, not too far away from the dam site. Uh, that was linked uh, to a landslide and unstable soils. And we do have to remember that when the Site C project was in its relatively early days of construction, there was a major tension crack, 400-meter-long crack, that opened on a slope that had been excavated uh, in preparation for uh, construction. And and that um, particular crack necessitated the removal of uh, 11 million cubic uh, meters, I believe, of material that BC Hydro deemed to be unstable material. So now we hear that BC Hydro knew about this, this stability problem six months ago, and they're still not sure how to fix this. They're gonna, it's going to take them a while to figure that out and a lot more money. What do you think, Ben, at this point needs to be done? Uh, I think that's a great question. As far as uh, uh, the CCPA is concerned, uh, we believe that this is the time for a uh, 
appointment of an independent panel of geoscientists and engineers to uh, independently evaluate um, the geotechnical problems at Site C and to consider the wider issues of instability in the region and, and the wisdom of allowing fracking operations anywhere in proximity uh, to this dam or, for that matter, in the Peace River region as a whole. Um, I think, too, that given uh, the fact that BC Hydro and the provincial government have both admitted that COVID has slowed down uh, construction activities at the dam site, this would be a very, very good time for an independent inquiry to look at this and to figure out exactly what is going on. All right. Well, we'll be talking more about it. Ben, thank you so much for talking to us this morning. Thank you very much for having me. That is Ben Parfit, policy analyst at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. They have a report out this morning talking about the thousands of earthquakes connected to fracking in the region of Site C, uh, stuff that now BC Hydro says they did know about, confirming that, yeah, there's a problem. They already know they have a stability problem. BC Hydro now admitted that, and they still don't know how they're going to deal with it. More to come on that. You want to weigh in? Simi at cknw.com. Much needed news for parents, for teachers, for everybody involved in the school system yesterday. Upon hearing that the provincial government has said, yes, okay, We've heard you. We will put off the September 8th date of starting school, uh, but we haven't got a firm kind of plan on how that looks yet, but that's what we're working on now. But there are some surveys out just this morning, as a matter of fact, that give us an idea of how people were feeling about that back-to-school idea. So joining us now is Steve Mossa, president at Insights West. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so tell me, what did you ask people? We asked people if they're comfortable going back to school, given the announcement that the provincial government made the week before. And are they in favor or are they opposed to the overall plan? It's about half and half. We're right divided down the middle. And in previous polls, as you've seen us covering, uh, the general public's been very in favor of of most of the public initiatives that the provincial government has launched since COVID-19 struck. So this is a bit unusual. There's a bit of division here. It sure sounds like it. So 49% said they were in favor of the back-to-school plan. 42% oppose it. That is pretty divisive. It is. And, you know, I, re- I remember last week when John Horgan was announcing the plan, and he said he thinks that he's not going to make everybody happy. People are not going to be happy with this plan, and we're not able to make everybody right. happy. And he was bang on. You know, if we look at uh, what people would prefer, again, people are split three different ways. We have... Uh, some who feel that remote learning was the best for their children, 27%, and that's what they'd like to see continue. We see that uh, the exact same number, 27%, would prefer their kids to be in the classroom full-time. And then we see 41% who prefer a mix of part-time remote learning and, and in-person teaching. Oh, boy. that just those, those numbers there show us right there about how challenging it is going to be to do this uh, in the fall. So to, just to recap what Steve said, 27% of the parents want their children in class full-time. 27% would prefer not in the classroom at all, remote learning only. 41% want a mix. Steve, there's it doesn't sound like there's going to be any way to please a majority of people here. No, and then on top of that, we see the school districts all coming up with their own nuances of what plans for what uh, what classrooms and what levels as well. So it's a real mixed bag. And I think one of the things we found in the poll is that parents are confused. No surprise there, about 80% say that there's just a lack of information out there about what's really happening and they need more. So that's, that's the primary reason for, I think, this divisiveness and opinion. And what about uh, concerns about childcare? Because I know this is a big issue. It is a big issue, but it's again, it's about half people. So 
we ask a, a series of what we call agree-disagree statements. And if there is remote learning, I don't know how I'm going to manage. That was a statement that 49% agreed to. Uh, and it's uh, related to child care, another 49% to say it's needed because uh, they, they don't have access to child care. Right. Did you ask about safety, how people feel, how parents are feeling about how safe school is? We did, and that as just over half feel that their children are safe, and that's still a big concern. You think of the way that the economy is reopened, and here we are just you know, weeks before the school, school system is opening, and only half of parents say that their children are going to be safe enough to go back to school. Okay, and I wonder if a lot of that has to do with information, right? And I was, with the government's plan, there were so many gaps in there that they were still waiting to fill that I wonder if that created some kind of a vacuum of concern. I think it's the gas, but it's also what's happening in the U.S. If you look at some of the numbers, you know, there was a story the other day about one child infecting, what was it, 25 teachers in the one, in the one school. And so when you hear headlines like that, it's quite concerning for parents, not just for their, their kids, but for the parents that then the kids go home and interact with. So how many parents want more information? Well, uh, 80% say we need more information. That's a lot. That is a lot. So it's really, uh, really vague right now. And they say that the provincial government's responsible for that, and they're not providing enough details in the rules and guidelines. Well, 70% agree with that. Which is so interesting because overall, you also ask them about how they feel, how the government has responded, and the government still gets pretty good marks. Yeah, overall, like if you look at, as, as I mentioned in the previous polls, the, the favorability and the support for the provincial government has been in the, the 75 to 80 percentile range. And that's huge. Those yeah. are massive numbers and compared to what we've seen in the past. It's just this one particular issue that has parents uh, divided. And let's talk about face masks, because you must have asked parents how they feel about the idea of face masks in schools. We know that Alberta is going to mandate this. Well, we were just about to go uh, and collect the data for the poll, and we, came, and we saw the Alberta announcement. Uh, we were surprised here. We found that it is about 80% support for face masks for teachers and staff. And then as you go down the list uh, in terms of ages, the support wanes a little bit, but it's still the majority. So, for example, uh, 77% say we want, we want face masks for, for uh, high school kids, and then it's 73% for middle school. It's only 58% for young children in K-3. to Interesting. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Steve. Thank you, Simi. Steve Mossett, president at Insights West. They've been asking parents out there a lot of questions about how they feel about going back to school, essentially. And you heard the mask wearing is really interesting. Mandatory face masks for teachers and staff, 79% support that. Uh, but for students, it depended on how old the students were. For high school-aged uh, kids, 77% of parents thought, yep, that's appropriate, should be happening. Middle school, 73%. And young children, as Steve pointed out, 58%. So it gets less as you get younger. Overall, though, it's going to be impossible for the government to please everybody with this. I think that is just the stark reality of this. Uh, you've got 27% of parents who say, I want my child back in the classroom full time. And then another 27% of people who say, nope, I don't want my child in the classroom at all. I want remote learning. And then 41% who want a mix of that. So what do you do at that point? You want to weigh in? Simi at cknw.com. Busy day in Ottawa yesterday. Lots of intrigue going around. Does the prime minister support the finance minister? What is going on there? We had federal employment minister Carla Qualtro testifying at the finance committee. And that all has to do with the WE charity. Let's get caught up to date. Our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson joins us now for more on all of this. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning. Let's start with the uh, Bill Morneau story here. What is going on with the relationship between the finance minister and the prime minister? 
<laughs> well, great question. Uh, there was a report yesterday morning in the Globe Mail that was saying that the finance minister's job could be in jeopardy after he and the prime minister's office ha- had come into disagreement over uh, a number of issues, but primarily what had happened with the WE charity and the decision to put uh, this youth program through the charity that has now drawn so much attention. Now, this story came out early in the morning, but it wasn't until around 2.30 p.m. that we actually heard from the Prime Minister's office saying that they do support Bill Morneau. Uh, that, that's a, a number of hours a gap, and a lot of people in Ottawa kind of went, huh, it's interesting uh, that was not an yeah. immediate response saying they support Bill Morneau. Uh, they came out and said that the Prime Minister fully supports him, uh, but I can tell you there's a lot of people around Ottawa who think that his days are numbered in this job at this point, that is just kind of one too many mistakes by Bill Morneau, one too many clashes with the Prime Minister's office. He's been calling around, I'm told, trying to drum up support. Hasn't found it that successful so Mm. far. So we'll see where that goes. He could still hold on to his job, but certainly uh, a lot of folks around town here think that it is potentially in jeopardy. Justin Trudeau may be looking for a cabinet shuffle before we head into a potential second wave of coronavirus, looking to shore up any weak points in his cabinet. And if he thinks Bill Morneau is one of those, he could be out. And then on top of that, pair it with the fact that we've been hearing all those rumors about how Mark Carney has actually been the one giving the Prime Minister financial advice to get through the coronavirus con- uh, right. conflict that we've been in. Uh, and that sort of, that looks to me like potentially two interesting trial balloons going up at the same time. So do you think this went sour because of the revelations of uh, Bill Morneau's close ties with the WE charity that seemed to come out of the blue to everybody? I, I think that's part of it. I mean, the fact that he sat around the cabinet table and as far as we were aware, did not disclose that his daughter worked at this charity. I mean, that's a very yeah. close family relationship to not say, you know what? Uh, yes, this is a financial program, but I think I need to step away because I have a direct family conflict here, or at least to declare that. Uh, and then the prime minister's office was not happy when they found out that he had somehow forgotten to repay $41,000 in trips. Uh, you know, this they were already under criticism. And then it comes out that uh, there's this missing money. And, and, you know, your average Canadian takes a look at this and thinks, you know, I could lose $410 without noticing yeah. it. How do you lose $41,000 and not notice you didn't pay it back or have that charity say, hey, uh, you didn't pay this money back to us. So that really sort of, I think, ratcheted things up in an already sensitive situation, in a situation where it appears the Prime Minister was already starting to turn outward and elsewhere for financial advice other than from his own finance minister. So what happened yesterday then with the Finance Committee, the hearing there, Carla Qualtro was testifying? Carla Qualtro was testifying, so was Bargdish Chagger. Nothing, you know, massively groundbreaking that came out of that, but we just continued to hear it seemed to be more lack of awareness and also from the, the top bureaucrat in Canada, uh, the clerk of the Privy Council, who said that he really couldn't account for why it was that there wasn't more due diligence done on we on, on whether or not they had the ability to administer this program. Uh, neither he nor Bargdish Chagger seemed to know whether or not we had in fact returned the money the federal government had given them, the $30 million we, by the way, gave a statement to Global News later in the day saying they have returned $22 million of the $30 million and they're waiting for the federal government to accept the other $8 million. Uh, but those seem like some pretty basic facts, like what yeah. kind of due diligence was done, etc. The big thing we're really waiting on at this point is 5,000 pages.
pages of documents that they're going through right now redacting with lawyers that will be publicly released by the committee that will show how the decision was made. And that's the first time we're really going to get some objective insight into why we, how we, when, who was involved, who knew what. Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, when those will come down as anyone's guess. The committee has had them since Saturday, um, but they're obviously going through this with a very fine tooth comb. And, uh, you know, we're all kind of dancing around in anticipation, waiting to get our hands on these documents. It does make you wonder, though, as you pointed out, what are all these people doing sitting around the cabinet table if nobody seems to know exactly where the background came from or how the decision was made? Well, and this is one of the big questions that's coming up. And I mean, they know that that Justin Trudeau actually says that he raised that he had some concerns. And as a result, um, this decision was put off by two weeks. And the clerk of the Privy Council kind of said he didn't really know what that due diligence entailed. And it doesn't appear he at least was aware of any follow up on the bureaucratic side to look into that. Mind you, it is up to politicians to disclose conflicts of interest. It's not up to the civil service yeah. to determine that for them. Uh, but it sort of raises these questions. And it's questions Trudeau has faced before about how he manages his cabinet about how decisions are made, about accountability, about when there could be a potential ethics conflict. How carefully are they looking at these things in advance? How much due diligence is really being done to determine why we was the only charity that could do this? Uh, and then, it, you know, there, there seemed to be confusion over why it was one branch of the charity, the one with the real estate holdings, right. and not the other. Well, we recommended it. Okay, well, why? did you look into why? <laughs> uh, well, it's a liability issue. I mean, all these questions where you kind of go, well, did anyone dig a little deeper on the surface yeah. here and ask some questions? So bizarre. Still so bizarre. Uh, Mercedes, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. That's Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief, right? The more questions, the more answers that seem to come along, the more questions we seem to have. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, good morning, everybody, on this Wednesday morning. Nice and sunny out there today, and we'll have more on your weather and traffic throughout the show. Right now, though, we're going to talk about New Zealand. We know that with all this COVID-19 stuff, that New Zealand seems to be a place that has done really well. All over the world, people have been impressed by the fact that New Zealand went more than 100 days. That's like more than three months with no new cases of COVID-19. So it really seemed like they had stomped this thing out, that they had found a way to do that. And pretty much in New Zealand, life was returning to a near normal state of affairs there. I mean, they were even holding sporting events at one point. They had thousands of people in attendance. But as always with this virus, it seems, that came to a screeching halt after a family of four in Auckland tested positive for the virus and health officials are still trying to figure out exactly where they might have gotten it from. So as a result, the country immediately went from an alert level one to an alert level three. That's a big change for a lot of people. So to find out more, our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to microbiologist Dr. Susie Wills from the University of Auckland. What do we know about how this family may have been exposed to the virus? So at the moment, we don't know very much. Um, the preliminary um, contact tracing has suggested there's no link with overseas travel or um, link with uh, anyone who works at the border or in managed isolation. Uh, so that's what's really worrying, um, and they'll be um, d digging more deeply into that um, over the next few days. Is this unheard of? It seems strange for the virus to just sort of pop up, for there to just be a case, you know, seemingly organically. Has something like this been recorded before? So there's a couple of ways it might have happened. So it could be a uh, essentially a sort of like a second um, in the chain of transmission so that they have had a contact with somebody who has had contact with someone to do with managed isolation. 
Um, another thing that we don't talk about very much is that um, so our managed isolation is 14 days, which is the same in, in most other countries. And um, there are a small number of people who can incubate the virus for a little bit longer than that. So that could be a potential way of somebody who's been through managed isolation and has tested negative and then has maybe become um, positive um, you know, at some later point. So that's quite rare, uh, but that's a, a possibility. So um, we're just going to have to wait and see what happens with the testing. And um, they'll be sequencing the virus as well, so that might also give us some clue, uh, you know, knowing, um, knowing that the virus is changing as it's moving around the world, that sort of will help. Uh, and then the pop-up um, uh, sort of pop-up testing booth that they're doing everywhere. Um, let's see if there are any other uh, cases that um, we didn't know about either. And it was uh, due to testing, I suppose, that this family was even known to be positive with the virus, correct? Well, it's just fantastic that they, you know, um, they stepped up and uh, and asked to get tested, right? I mean, this is the thing that we have been uh, asking New Zealanders to do. Um, you know, we're all a bit complacent because we've been at sort of almost like back to normal. So it's really great that they didn't ignore the symptoms um, and that they called up and got tested. And, and this is how we find, you know, what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. So now that you've gone up into a higher alert level as a result of this family testing positive for COVID-19, can we just go back a short a short while ago when your alert level was very low? We're not quite experiencing that here in British Columbia. So I'm curious, what was daily life like for you? Yeah, so um, here in New Zealand, we've been at alert level one, which has really been kind of back to normal, but except uh, not going overseas and not having any uh, overseas tourists here. So we've been, you know, having large gatherings, going to cinema, restaurants, bars, um, all of those kinds of things, and not wearing any masks, not doing any physical distancing, um, none of that sort of stuff. Uh, now, Auckland is at alert level three, so this is a very, uh, uh, not our strictest um, alert level, but it is pretty strict, so everybody who... Uh, isn't an essential worker is basically to stay home. Um, this is sort of described as our uh, lockdown but with takeaway. So um, at our strictest uh, alert level, um, only those who are essential workers are allowed to work, and that's a very uh, defined. Um, at this level, uh, where businesses that offer takeaways are allowed to open, providing the people who work there can um, physically distance. Uh, and then the other thing that's different um, this time around is also the wearing of masks. So we didn't have that at our original um, alert levels, and now uh, masks have been brought in. And then the rest of the country um, is at alert level two. So that is uh, basically there's now a cap on group sizes, uh, gathering sizes of 100, um, and people are asked to wear masks um, if they can't do um, physical distancing. Your government's responded really quickly to all of this. Your Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, announcing that Auckland will be moving to that level three alert until uh, at least Friday, as, as we've discussed. Your government's clearly acted very swiftly here to address this problem. So New Zealand has this elimination strategy, which the Prime Minister has talked about um, from the very beginning, which is that we will act fast and we will act hard. So at the very first cases of community transmission, she has moved us into the sort of temporary, um, uh, moving up the alert levels and massively ramped up the the community testing um, for the virus. Uh, What we're watching at the moment overseas, um, especially in Australia, is that if you delay at all, um, you end up getting exponential spread of virus. So they took five weeks to go um, from when they started their um, latest outbreak uh, to putting in the kind of restrictions that we've put in after four cases. 
Um, and they're, you know, over the last week we've seen over 100 people die. So we do not want that to happen here in New Zealand. And that's why the move really um, fast and hard. And, you know, it's all about restricting our movements while they aren't aware, you know, while they're trying to find out what is going on with this um, family, where they got the virus. Uh, so we'll find out on Friday whether we're going to be staying in these restrictions for longer. Uh, and that will all depend on whether they can um, find the source of the infection for the family. Here in Canada, we've certainly been in awe of where you in New Zealand are with the virus or have been with the virus. Our sports are just getting started again. We're playing hockey in the middle of August with no one in the arena. But when you watch New Zealand rugby on TV, you see an arena full of people. And I know that this weekend, there's supposed to be a really big sold out rugby match with 43,000 people in attendance. What will happen to those sporting events that were previously happening? I assume those will also be put on hold? Yeah, so um, basically around the country, you know, restriction of 100 people at a gathering. So that would mean all sports matches and all of those kinds of things will uh, will be postponed. Um, the question is whether, uh, so this is just on Friday, and the question is what's going to happen on Friday. Um, I suspect we will probably uh, stay um, under these restrictions for a little longer. I mean, I'm supposed to be going to a conference uh, at a different part of the country, um, and uh, so that so that conference is now being moved online. I can't even leave Auckland uh, tomorrow, so yeah, it's going to be very, very disruptive. But really important because we do not want, you know, um, an escalation in the number of cases. Yeah, I suppose if anyone's going to take these measures seriously, it's going to be a conference of microbiologists. <laughs> It's their kind of continuing medical education thing, you know, how they do this like once a year. So the last thing we need is all of our GPs from around the South Island basically being exposed to COVID-19. That would be an absolute disaster. Yeah, not not good there for sure. All right, that is microbiologist Dr. Susie Wells from the University of Auckland talking about the, I know it's small, increase in cases in New Zealand, but still very significant given that they went more than 100 days without having a single case. This is Mornings with Simi. So we wanted to spend some time today talking about going back to school. For a couple of weeks now, it's been a very hot topic of discussion. People unhappy with what the province had put forward as their plan. And now we're hearing that, you know what, they're going to tinker with this thing big time. They're going to push back the date. Uh, but still, it, I think what it shows is the huge level of concern and anxiety that there is around this. So we're joined now by Nikki Reitmeyer to talk more about that this morning. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, I think there was so much anxiety surrounding what exactly back to school was going to look like that the province really had no choice but to to go back to the drawing board and and relook at what their plan was going to be as they moved forward into the school year. And that means a slight delay. So we had the education minister, Rob Fleming, say yesterday that essentially the new idea is to get staff back together again. So he said, you know, whether it's support staff, whether it's teachers and administrators, and then they're going to finalize how school operations are going to work. He said they're going to go through this thorough review of what the CDC health and safety guidelines are, and then they're going to start to accept students back later in the first week of school because it was supposed to start September 8th. So now it's going to be pushed back maybe by a few days, it sounds like, until they can kind of get their ducks in a row, figure out what the plan is going to be, and then they'll start transitioning kids back again. Right. I know that's a relief for a lot of parents out there. I'm sure for school boards too, because they must have thought, well, this is a huge plan that we have to put together. 
Yeah, we'd heard so much vocal opposition to going back to school for September 8th. I'm sure there's some organizations that would like to see this pushed even further. But, you know, at least by a few days, I'm sure we'll appease some organizations who were just hoping for more organization going back to school again. I mean, the BC Teachers Federation and BC Principals and Vice Principals Association, they had both been asking for a delay to the start of the school year, hoping for, you know, a a bit more organization, a bit more detail into how the school year would be operating. I know a lot of people were calling for masks, uh, as we've been seeing in other provinces and weren't getting that as well. So there was uh, a lot of vocal opposition to going back September 8th. I would be very curious to hear from parents and teachers today, though, if they think that delaying it by a couple days is enough, if they want to see it delayed more, or on the other hand, if you don't agree with this at all if you want to get your kid back into school again. Exactly. Too. What's happening in other provinces? Like, what are they doing there comparatively? Yeah, so our neighbors just next door in Alberta, they're aiming to go back for the start of the school year starting September 2nd. So they're still shooting for that early September start date to get kids back in the door. They have a rule, though, that the kids will have to wear masks. And as a very interesting side note to this story, so because the kids have to wear masks, they're going to be supplying students with masks. And it's costing them millions of dollars. Uh, They're making 1.7 million masks. It's costing a total of $4.2 million. I guess this is just the cost of business these days, though, when we're dealing with the pandemic and getting kids back to school safely again. But they contracted out the the creation of those masks to two companies. So one company is called IFR, which is an Alberta-based company. They'll be doing 10% of the masks. The other 90% have been contracted out to Old Navy. What? Yeah, I know. That's what I thought too. When I saw that, I thought, what? Old Navy? Yeah, like the big American store, Old Navy. I mean, we all know Old Navy. They're going to be making 90% of the masks for Alberta hey, kids. whatever as works. They go back to school. If that's what it's going to take to get like, you know, hundreds of thousands of masks, I guess that's what it's going to take. I, I guess that's what you got to do, right? Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, if we look over at what Ontario is doing right now, they are letting parents decide whether or not they oh. want to send their kids back to school. I, I thought this was quite interesting as well, because it was some of the controversy that we'd been hearing here from parents. So I'm saying, you know, maybe I'm not comfortable sending my kids back. We kind of did that in June, though. Do you know what I mean? Like they, all these other provinces did not send kids back to school in June. We did. And that option mm. of parents can decide, we did that back at, back in June, essentially. We did. And some people still wanting it to happen in September. So, you know, we have gone through that process before. And you're right. There was other provinces that, you know, either kids went back or, you know, it was delayed or so forth. But they'll be carrying right. that model in Ontario on through September. So you have to let, essentially, if you're a parent, you have to let the Toronto District School Board know if your kid is going to be enrolled in class or if your kid's going to be doing it online. They said, look, once you make up your mind, you've made up your mind. There's not a lot of switching that can be done in between. But it's kind of interesting just to take a peek at what some of the other provinces are doing and how they're addressing this. Because it's not easy anywhere. It's not easy for any government. It's not. But we're running a poll on this this morning on Twitter, which you can find at CKNW. I've also retweeted it. So it's at Simisara980. We've got more than 500 votes on this. Yeah, more than 500 votes already. We asked you know, as a parent, how do you feel about the start of the school year in BC being pushed back past September 8th? So 43% said, I'm happy to hear it. 
21% said, I don't really know how I feel. 17% saying, I'm really disappointed. And then 19% saying, look, just cancel in-class learning altogether. So you can really? vote online on our Twitter. Uh, and of course, call the buzz line as well, 604-331-BUZZ, and let us know what your thoughts are on this, whether you're a teacher, a parent, or even a student. Right. Sounds like a plan. We're going to be talking more about it. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about real estate this morning, shall we? Because some of those numbers out of the month of July were surprising. Real estate market actually showed quite a rebound. Numbers actually improving year over year, let alone month after month, right? So we are seeing a bit of a return to potentially pre-COVID levels when you look at the greater Vancouver area. But you know what? In the Okanagan, they're actually seeing a massive increase over July of last year. Yeah, a huge improvement, actually. So we wanted to talk more about this. So joining us this morning is Luke Turi, Executive Vice President at Mission Group. Mission Group is developing a property in the Okanagan, and we'll find out what is going on there. Luke, thank you very much for being here. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Amy. What are you seeing in the Okanagan that clearly is making it so attractive right now, real estate-wise? Yeah, I mean, it, it really is an exciting time to be in Kelowna, even given what's uh, kind of going on in the world. And and Kelowna's really you know, no longer been, uh, you know, a great place to visit, which of course it is. And I'm sure many of your listeners have, uh, you know, maybe had a summer vacation in Kelowna. But there's been a real urban transformation that's been happening in the past few years. And I think a lot of that is due to kind of the, the lifestyle and quality of life factors that have become more and more important, whether people are uh, choosing to work remotely, or they're able uh, to commute in that way. But there's also just uh, uh, a wonderful uh, entrepreneurial spirit and energy, the tech sector uh, investment from uh, the University of British Columbia and other post-secondary institutions. Uh, it's, it's really changing the game here in Kelowna. So you mentioned working remotely there. I wonder how much of that has to do with COVID-19 and people deciding, I don't need to live in the same city where I work. Yeah, I mean, that's a, been a very interesting trend these days. You see that when people don't have to make their uh, on where they have to commute or their commuting times, and you have that flexibility, I mean, if you could choose where you'd live not based on that, I, I think we'd all agree you'd want to focus on the type of quality of life factors. I mean, the, out, the outdoor amenity in Kelowna is fantastic. I mean, you're, you're 15 minutes from... Uh, from the mountains, you're right here on the lake, the, the ski hills, the wineries, the golf courses, it, it goes on and on. And uh, the ability to do that while still being a few hours down the highway uh, from Vancouver. And then, of course, uh, with the remote working lifestyle, we, we have definitely seen a, a shift in that way of thinking. Oh, so what is, are there particular projects going on in the Okanagan right now, too, that make demand increase? Yeah, there, there's actually uh, quite a bit of interest going on downtown. Uh, we've been very invested, uh, Mission Group, over the past few years in uh, kind of this urban transformation downtown. We're working on a project called Bernard Block, which is an urban village right on the, the main street of downtown, a few blocks from Lake Okanagan. And uh, so there's these, uh, you know, the, the level of sophistication in terms of the real estate world that uh, you might, listeners might know in the Lower Mainland very, very modern concrete condominiums uh, and office spaces, but you're doing that at a much higher value uh, for your dollar. And of course, you're right on Okanagan Lake in, in beautiful Kelowna. Right. And that UBC Kelowna campus is just getting bigger and bigger too, isn't it? Yeah, that's been very interesting. Certainly, uh, 2005 is when UBC started the Okanagan campus here. We have over 20,000 post-secondary students between Okanagan College and UBC Okanagan and Kelowna. 
but UBC Okanagan just recently announced a downtown campus. We're actually a development partner with them. And so they, they've decided that they want to uh, make a presence in downtown Kelowna. And I think they, they too see the opportunity that uh, the downtown of Kelowna in particular presents in, uh, in the trajectory that it's on. And so there's going to be an amazing world-class uh, academic space also uh, as part of this this growth story. So it's very cool to see, and it's a wonderful as an investment opportunity in Kelowna. Oh, but what does this mean for prices, Luke? Yeah, well, I think that's been, when, when you add up all of the, the lifestyle factors and the quality of life and some of these trends, that I think that people are looking more towards uh, high amenity, mid-sized cities. And then you look at the value of the dollar uh, compared to the more lower mainland, you can kind of see why the trend is starting to gain momentum. And we, we have, you know, the majority of these homes are all lake views and you have, you know, homes in the mid 2000s up to a lot of them in the kind of the the low 500s the low 600,000s all the way through uh one bedrooms to two two bedroom homes and so those prices comparatively to what you know might be used to in the lower mainland uh the, the value is a is a wonderful opportunity oh well, certainly interesting times for real estate luke thanks so much for your time Timmy, I'm more than happy to join you. Thank you. That's Luke Turry, the Executive Vice President at Mission Group. They're developing quite a bit of property in the Okanagan, uh, like things like that new downtown UBC Kelowna campus. They've got more interest from buyers who don't necessarily want to work in that area, but can work remotely. So now they want to live kind of outside of the cities or they want to do the commute, whatever the case may be. I can see that happening actually for a lot of uh, smaller communities around the province. I'm sure it's something that people have discussed. Go somewhere where you can afford to actually have a, a nice place and some space and all of that and just work from home as people have been doing already for the last few months. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. We'll have to watch prices carefully, though, to see what happens, uh, particularly in that Okanagan area where sales are up something like 50% July over uh, July 2020 versus July 2019. This is Mornings with Simi. So our big discussion today has to do with getting the kids back to school. I know it was a big relief for a lot of parents out there when they heard, and teachers too, when they heard yesterday that the provincial government is backpedaling on that plan to get kids in the classroom for September the 8th. Except now it's like, well, when are they going to go back? What is the parameter here that we are working with? Good question. Listen to Education Minister Rob Fleming yesterday. We're working through the steering committee uh, that uh, is composed of all of the K-12 stakeholders to have a coordinated uh, approach on returning to school in recognition that uh, starting up school safely in a pandemic year requires some additional uh, scheduling logistical concerns and and operations. So really the idea is to get uh, staff back together, whether it's uh, support staff, uh, teachers and administrators, uh, to uh, finalize how the school operations are going to work, a thorough review of the BC Centre for Disease Control uh, guidelines, and then to accept uh, uh, students back later in the uh, in the first week of school. We'll, those discussions are ongoing, and we want to respect the uh, advice that we're getting from uh, organizations like the BC Teachers Federation, QPBC, Superintendents Association, uh, and principals and vice principals, among others. So uh, that is uh, something that's uh, under discussion right now with the uh, steering committee that we have for the uh, overall K-12 restart, and we'll have something to say after we've uh, considered that advice. 
Okay, so remember the BC Teachers Federation had pushed back immediately when it was originally announced that everybody would be going back to school on September the 8th. BC principals and vice principals, well, we talked to them right here on the show and they said they wanted a more flexible approach. So we thought, let's get some more reaction to how this is all unfolding. So joining us now is BC Liberal Education critic Dan Davies. Thank you very much for being here. Hey, good morning, Timmy. Now, what you obviously this is something that we had talked to you about before. You thought this needed to be more flexible. What do you think about what happened yesterday? Well, I think there there probably is quite a bit of relief uh, now that we are looking at a little bit flex, or a little bit of flexibility for uh, students to be back in in the classroom. Uh, we we don't know for sure now when uh, students will actually be in the class. We we know that uh, staff will be in the, the classroom or into the schools on the eighth. Um, but yeah, no, it is, it is good that, uh, that this has happened. And, uh, you know, like I say, I, I hosted a town hall yesterday and I, I know that yeah. there was a lot of relief uh, from people on that. Yeah. I was wondering about that. I know you'd hosted that. So what were you hearing from people? Oh my goodness. How long do we got? <laughs> you know, <laughs> there, there was, uh, there was a lot of comments. Uh, we had about 170 people uh, on the call yesterday. Um, you know, and I, I, I think, you know, one of the, the, the themes that we heard throughout is the, the immense anxiety uh, that uh, families are feeling right now over this, and and, and rightly so. Uh, you know, we were hoping to uh, see kind of a comprehensive plan on July the uh, 29th. Uh, unfortunately, we, we didn't see that. Um, the the ministry announced uh, some budget dollars attached to it, which, uh, you know, certainly were important. Uh, talked about the cohort and then handed uh, everything else off to the uh, individual school districts uh, to come up with a plan for August 20. Six and uh, I, I know we heard from parents last night saying August twenty sixth that uh, doesn't give a lot of time for organizing yeah. work schedules and you know daycare as needed. Uh, you know, understanding what is daycare even going to look like. There's you know a shortage of it. Um, you know, there's uh, there's a lot of people that uh, are immunocompromised. Uh, you know, whether it's the child or someone that lives at home, a parent. Um, you know, and and uh, you know, severe anxiety around, you know, putting my, you know, they've, they've had small bubbles throughout this entire pandemic, hmm. and now they are going into 60 or 120 um, uh, people, and, and what are the, you know, what's going to happen if they, they bring something home um, when they're asymptomatic and still carrying the virus? So there, there was a, an incredible amount of anxiety, and, and, uh, um, and, and doesn't seem to be a lot of options for, for those uh, families. No, there doesn't. So now that they've kind of hit pause and they're gathering more information, what advice would you give the government at this point about the best way to move forward? Well, listen to the uh, to the families. Um, you know, there's there's been uh, and, and you know it's good to hear that the minister is listening to the stakeholders. Um, but uh, like I say, the, I mean, I know that the minister has been written a lot of letters because I've been cc'd in them. Um, and uh, a lot of those have uh, a lot of real concerns. I mean, you know, we, we uh, you know, I just mentioned about the uh, people that have uh, compromised immunity. Yeah, uh, they're you know they're they're basically being told, well, you can homeschool. Well, right. then they go to they go to the homes or they go to the uh, distant learning, and uh, of course, people are going there. They're all full. Yeah. So and and the the independent distributed learning, well. They just cut twelve million dollars out of that in May. So I mean, I mean that the options, even if they're being given, aren't uh, aren't that great. Do you think we do have to push ahead though? That there has to be some form of this happening in September. We've got to get some kids back yeah. in school. 
Yeah, you know, and and I, I think everybody agrees it's uh, it's it's absolutely important that uh, that our kids are learning. Uh, it's important that our kids. Uh, I mean, I'm a father of two children, uh, former school teacher myself. Uh, you know, it's an, it's it is it's absolutely critical that uh, that kids get this social interaction, but we need to balance it uh, with the most important factor, and that's safety. Uh, is it safe for the kids? Is it safe for staff to be in the schools? And uh, that's the fine balancing act that has to be done. Every everything needs to be uh, uh, having that focus. And and uh, like I say, parents don't feel that they've seen that yet. All right, we'll be talking more about it. Thank you very much for your time. Have a fantastic day, Simi. You too. That's Dan Davies, BC Liberal Education critic. Glad to hear the government has pressed pause on this and is rethinking it. He's heard a lot of concerns, though, from families and from teachers as well. Let's also talk about the teacher reaction to this. Joining us now is Stephen Price, teacher and education columnist. Stephen, thank you for being here. Thank you, Simi. You must also be happy to hear that they've decided to push this back a little bit. Yeah, I was I was glad to hear that we have a little bit of time. Um, but uh, like always, it seems that there's there's just not enough there for us to get what uh, the job done that we need to get done. Uh, with the minister saying it'll definitely be the first week back sometime, that tells me right. it's going to be you know Wednesday or Thursday, um, and that'll give us enough time to get you know tape on the floors to tell the kids which direction they're going and and talk through as a staff sort of what the basics are. Um, but there's a huge, huge design challenge that we're all facing as teachers, and, uh, and, and there isn't time being given for that. And what is that design challenge? Well, we now have to redesign school. Um, most high school teachers will probably have new courses because of the shuffling of, uh, of how schools work with the cohorts. We have now space constraints, trying to ensure distancing in a space where there are really not a lot of options to do that distancing. Um, we have funding constraints. The government has funded clean surfaces and clean hands, but they haven't actually funded any uh, any money to, for example, uh, sort out a student with special needs who who maybe needs their own space, as Dr. Henry recommended for a student who is immunocompromised, there are zero dollars in the budget for, right. for serving that student. Um, so those are some of the design constraints that, that actually necessitate a real big redesign of how we work as teachers. I wonder, would, would the more funding really help, though? But I was thinking as well about teachers. A lot of them, we've heard that, you know, because there won't be any international students this year, there could be teacher layoffs. Would more funding help to keep those teachers and perhaps spread out some of the students a bit more? Well, that's exactly it, right? So the the superintendents, I have so much sympathy for them because they're trying to solve problems uh, in a very unsure uh, environment. They don't know what their budget will actually be until September 30th when we see if parents have faith in the plan and have sent their kids back to school, as well as the international students. And so, so they're making very conservative design decisions, which is understandable. They don't want to run a deficit. Um, and those drive what we do in classes and the quality of the decisions we're making around this plan. Um, and so if we knew that there was funding there to put out the fires that, that are created by the challenges, um, then we would be able to, to do a much better job of MacGyvering this school year. MacGyvering the school year. That's a good way to put it. Uh, what about the districts? Because we know now it is le- a lot of this is left up to the districts to deal with. What are you hearing from some of those areas? Um, well, I think uh, we don't have a lot of information yet as teachers. They are doing a ton of work, I know, um, to get things organized and, and get communications out to teachers. Uh, we've just been told to sort of hang tight and, and, and send them lots of good thoughts, which I am. 
Okay, that helps too, right? Every little bit helps. I know that everybody's been preaching patience in this as well, but do you find that just the anxiety, I think, is getting to a lot of parents and teachers here? For sure. And, and I'll give you an example. So I have a friend who's a CEO of, of a tech company locally, and, uh, and his, he's got three senior staff with kids who are critical to his, his business. Uh, that are not comfortable with the plan as it is. And so he isn't able to get the economy going until his staff have faith in the education plan. And based on the design, which was really driven by funding constraints, um, based on that, de- on, on that design, they are not comfortable sending their kids back to school in September, and he's not sure how his business is, right. gonna, is going to ramp up again. So, Stephen, what would you like to see happen here? They've said they're paused and they said they're listening. What do you want to tell them? Well, uh, we need the money to actually do the resources. So if you look at nurses, they're getting a $5 an hour COVID bonus right now. Um, a nurse on, 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 who works on Labor Day gets two and a half times their wage. There's a number of, of things that, uh, that we're doing for healthcare to kind of infuse some dollars to solve some problems. And I don't need a, a raise. I just need some help. So uh, extra staff, keep those staff you're laying off. Uh, extra time, if you can give us any extra time to do that planning. And that doesn't necessarily mean keeping kids at home. That could mean extra prep time for teachers during the school day to kind of catch up on the design challenge they're doing. Um, All of those resourcing pieces uh, would help so much, even if we're still going to have classes of 30. All right, we'll see what happens. Stephen, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you, Timmy. That's Stephen Price, teacher and education columnist, uh, giving his thoughts on the delayed return to school that we heard is coming forward. We heard that you know late yesterday afternoon from the province. I should mention here as well, Premier John Horgan has a media availability coming up at one o'clock this afternoon. It's usually his weekly availability, but you can bet that he is going to be talking about this. It sounds like he's going to be joined by Health Minister Adrian Dix and Dr. Bonnie Henry. So we'll get an update on COVID-19 as well. But back to school question really at the top of the list. Whether you have children, whether you're working at a company where other people have children, it affects everybody. This is Mornings with Simi. So has summer been the easy part of the pandemic? I and mean, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, sure, more people are outdoors. Uh, you know, people are kind of spreading themselves out in the outdoors, which is better. But when winter comes, is that going to be a problem or will more people stay indoors and therefore not sit on the patio and drink and not socially distance? Like, I'm not sure which one might be better. But there is a concern that when fall and winter hit and people start potentially socializing indoors more, that we could have a problem. So we thought, let's talk about that. Tim Sly is with us now, epidemiologist and professor emeritus at Ryerson University. Tim, thank you for being here. Hi, Sammy. How are you doing? I am good, thank you. Do, you. do you think fall and winter are going to be a bigger concern than summer? Well, people have been talking about a seasonality for COVID, but there's really no evidence that it follows the influenza pattern where we know that has a, an increase in the winter months and then it goes down in the summer. No indication that that's going to happen here at all. But what there is an indication of is that it's more of a behavioral uh, wave we can expect. In other words, it's what actually people are doing. So as you say, they, it, we're coming in out of the park, uh, off the patio, and we're going indoors now into the restaurant, up, cozy up to the bar, ordering a couple of more beers. It's what we're doing with each other and more people in limited number of space. 
Right. I guess because that's what we're seeing right now. A lot of socializing, right? And as we heard, I think it was the British police say, drunk people aren't very good at physically distancing. Are we worried that they're just then going to move those parties indoors or maybe they won't have those parties? Well, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's difficult to imagine not having those uh, gatherings because, uh, you know, it's all very well on the patio and the weather's nice. But when it gets a bit chilly, uh, and I've even heard suggestions, you, we should bring school children outside more and have more lessons outside. Well, that sounds very good when you're in the middle of August, but go to February when it's, you know, at least here in Toronto, it could be minus 23 or something like that, and the wind's blowing. I don't think grade fives are going to spend many more than a few minutes outside in that kind of temperature. So it's a bit unrealistic. Yep, we will be seeing people gathering together, more human beings per cubic meter of indoor space. The windows will be closed, of course. And, uh, you know, we've got a fatigue, too. I mean, the media people like you and uh, me as well, we've been talking about yeah. this now for months. How many thousands of times have they heard it? It's, it's, a, it's like water on a duck's back now. So we've got to regenerate that awareness. It hasn't really gone away at all. So how should we approach this then? Like, we don't know. It's still a great big unknown. So how do you warn people about something? We're not quite sure how this is going to go. Well, out of sight, out of mind, right? I mean, they don't see it, and they've forgotten it, and we don't see what's going on inside of an ICU. I think somebody suggested even having full-length color pictures inside every bus shelter of some poor soul in an ICU bed with a ventilator stuck in his throat and other other tubes in every orifice saying, you know, this hasn't gone away. Don't forget 97, 98% of the entire population of Canada is completely susceptible to this. No protection at all. And the virus, last time we looked, isn't getting any weaker. It hasn't gone anywhere. So it's much like the, the forest floor. You know, everything's dry, tender, ready to go up. It just takes one person to throw a match down there and boof, off, away we go. Okay, well that sounds scary when you put it that way, Tim. So what what should we be preparing ourselves for? What should we be thinking about heading towards a cooler season? Well, as, we, as we've been getting back to work, back onto the uh, transit systems, back to the offices and so on, remember, as that kind of liberation or freedom takes place, we've got to then ramp up the individual person-to-person care and attention. Now, if you're living in a part of Canada where there's hardly any cases, you know, you can relax a bit more. But, but we've got to be aware that if it is moving through the community, then it's going to move very rapidly where people are getting close together. So we don't look at the number of cases. That's notoriously unreliable. We look at the number of uh, or the proportion of the tests that come back as positive. So it doesn't matter whether you took 100 tests or 1,000 tests. It's the, it's the percentage that come back positive. And it, for the whole of Canada, that's about one, about 2.3%, 2.4%. Ontario is down less than 1%. BC was less than 1% until about two weeks ago. I think it may be slightly higher now, but we've got to keep that figure down. It means there's less movement in the right. community. Just as a comparison, United States, they're frequently more than 20%. There's a couple of states more than 25% Ooh. of the tests come back positive. Okay, so still, as you point out, a lot of work to do. Tim, thanks so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Simi. Stay safe. You too. That's Tim Sly, epidemiologist, professor emeritus at Ryerson University, uh, saying he's a little concerned about what's going to happen this fall and winter as the weather gets colder, knowing that so many people are still susceptible to this virus. And we don't know how the virus is going to behave once people start spending more time indoors and potentially in closer quarters with other people. Still lots of concerns out there. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, we wanted to talk more about a story that Vaughn uh, discussed earlier. He was talking about this uh, Site C situation and a report that came out just this morning from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Well, Ben Parfit joins us now, a policy analyst with the CCPA, to talk about that. Ben, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. So tell me what it is that you took a look at with this report. Well, what we did was we uh, looked at um, studies that have been done uh, by geoscientists and earth scientists in northeast British Columbia, where they had attempted to quantify exactly how many earthquakes were occurring in the region out of a belief that the uh, numbers reported by uh, NRCAN uh, or Natural Resources Canada didn't fully uh, uh, cover the uh, number of earthquakes that were occurring. So we took the information from those recent studies and a very uh, uh, experienced mapper plotted all of those earthquakes onto a map. And what they show is that in 2017 and 2018 alone, there were more than 6,500 earthquakes uh, in a very sensitive zone that includes uh, the Site C dam. That number uh, compares with only 71 earthquakes as reported in the NRCAN database. So clearly there are a lot more earthquakes occurring when you look at the much uh, larger network of uh, seismographs or earthquake monitoring uh, equipment in northeast BC. And unfortunately, a very troubling number of these earthquakes are occurring in this very sensitive zone where scientists have independently warned the Provincial Oil and Gas Commission there are underlying faults that can become critically stressed during fracking operations. And it turns out that these earthquakes, uh, this uh, intense cluster of earthquakes is occurring in a very active zone that is being fracked by natural gas companies, and those fracking operations are triggering earthquakes, including a 4.5 magnitude event in November 18 that shook the ground with considerable force at the Site C construction site and resulted in the evacuation of workers from that site in November of 2018. Wow. So I guess it doesn't surprise you then when you hear about all the stability problems now that the Site C area is having. Well, yeah, I mean, I think what is very important for people to understand is from the get-go, the Site C project um, was uh, deemed by many to be being built in an area that was geologically fraught. You only have to be on the river or spend time in the River Valley to see evidence of numerous slides. Um, It's important to remember that there was a significant landslide Uh, Two years ago, just before the 4.5 magnitude event, two months before it, uh, that wiped out the only road leading into and out of the community of Old Fort, which is just downstream of the the Site C site. This is an area that has experienced significant um, issues uh, in the past. Uh, There was a bridge collapse in 1957 at Taylor, not too far away from the dam site. Uh, that was linked uh, to a landslide and unstable soils. And we do have to remember that when the Site C project was in its relatively early days of construction, there was a major tension crack, 400-meter-long crack, that opened on a slope that had been excavated uh, in preparation for uh, construction. And and that um, particular crack necessitated the removal of uh, 11 million cubic uh, meters, I believe, of material 
that BC Hydro deemed to be unstable material. So now we hear that BC Hydro knew about this this stability problem six months ago, and they're still not sure how to fix this. They're gonna it's gonna take them a while to figure that out, and a lot more money. What do you think, Ben? At this point, needs to be done. Uh, I think that's a great question. As far as uh, uh, the CCPA is concerned, uh, we believe that this is the time for a. Uh, appointment of an independent panel of geoscientists and engineers to uh, independently evaluate um, the geotechnical problems at Site C and to consider the wider issues of instability in the region and and the wisdom of allowing fracking operations anywhere in proximity uh, to this dam or, for that matter, in the Peace River region as a whole. Um, I think, too, that given uh, the fact that BC Hydro and the provincial government have both admitted that COVID has slowed down uh, construction activities at the dam site. This would be a very, very good time for an independent inquiry to look at this and to figure out exactly what is going on. All right. Well, we'll be talking more about it. Ben, thank you so much for talking to us this morning. Thank you very much for having me. That is Ben Parfit, Policy Analyst at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. They have a report out this morning talking about the thousands of earthquakes connected to fracking in the region of Site C, uh, stuff that now BC Hydro says they did know about, confirming that, yeah, there's a problem. They already know they have a stability problem. BC Hydro now admitted that, and they still don't know how they're going to deal with it. More to come on that. You want to weigh in? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Much needed news for parents, for teachers, for everybody involved in the school system yesterday. Upon hearing that the provincial government has said, yes, okay, we've heard you. We will put off the September 8th date of starting school, uh, but we haven't got a firm kind of plan on how that looks yet. But that's what we're working on now. But there are some surveys out just this morning, as a matter of fact, that give us an idea of how people were feeling about that back to school idea. So joining us now is Steve Mossa, president at Insights West. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so tell me, what did you ask people? We asked people if they're comfortable going back to school, given the announcement that the provincial government made the week before. And are they in favor or are they opposed to the overall plan? It's about half and half. We're right divided down the middle. And in previous polls, as you've seen us covering, uh, the general public's been very in favor of of most of the public initiatives that the provincial government has launched since COVID-19 struck. So this is a bit unusual. There's a bit of division here. It sure sounds like it. So 49% said they were in favor of the back-to-school plan. 42% oppose it. That is pretty divisive. It is. And, you know, I, re- I remember last week when John Horgan was announcing the plan, and he said he thinks that he's not going to make everybody happy. People are not going to be happy with this plan, and we're not able to make everybody right. happy. And he was bang on. You know, if we look at uh, what people would prefer, again, people are split three different ways. We have... Uh, some who feel that remote learning was the best for their children, 27%, and that's what they'd like to see continue. We see that uh, the exact same number, 27%, would prefer their kids to be in a classroom full-time. And then we see 41% who prefer a mix of part-time remote learning and, and in-person teaching. Oh, boy. that just those, those numbers there show us right there about how challenging it is going to be to do this uh, in the fall. So to, just to recap what Steve said, 27% of the parents want their children in class full-time. 27% would prefer not in the classroom at all, remote learning only. 41% want a mix. Steve, there's it doesn't sound like there's going to be any way to please a majority of people here. 
No, and then on top of that, we see the school districts all coming up with their own nuances of what plans for what uh, what classrooms and what levels as well. So it's a real mixed bag. And I think one of the things we found in the poll is that parents are confused. No surprise there. About 80% say that there's just a lack of information out there about what's really happening and they need more. So that's that's the primary reason for, I think, this divisiveness and opinion. And what about uh, concerns about child care? Because I know this is a big issue. It is a big issue, but it's again, it's about half people. So we ask a, a series of what we call agree-disagree statements. And if there is remote learning, I don't know how I'm going to manage. That was a statement that 49% agreed to. Uh, and it's uh, related to child care, another 49% that say it's needed because uh, they, they don't have access to child care. Right. Did you ask about safety, how people feel, how parents are feeling about how safe school is? We did, and that as just over half feel that their children are safe. And that's still a big concern. You think of the way that the economy is reopened. And here we are just, you know, weeks before the school school system is opening and only half a parent say that their children are going to be safe enough to go back to school. Okay. And I wonder if a lot of that has to do with information, right? And I was, with the government's plan, there were so many gaps in there that they were still waiting to fill that I wonder if that created some kind of a vacuum of concern. I think it's the gaps, but it's also what's happening in the U.S. If you look at some of the numbers, you know, there was a story the other day about one child infecting, what was it, 25 teachers in the one in the one school. And so when you hear headlines like that, it's quite concerning for parents, not just for their, their kids, but for the parents that then the kids go home and interact with. So how many parents want more information? Well, uh, 80% say we need more information. That's a lot. That is a lot. So it's really, really vague right now. And they say that the provincial government's responsible for that, and they're not providing enough details in the rules and guidelines. Well, 70% agree with that. Which is so interesting because overall, you also ask them about how they feel, how the government has responded, and the government still gets pretty good marks. Yeah, overall, like if you look at, as I mentioned in the previous polls, the, the favorability and the support for the provincial government has been in the, the 75 to 80 percentile range. And that's huge. Those yeah. are massive numbers uh, compared to what we've seen in the past. It's just this one particular issue that has parents uh, divided. And let's talk about face masks, because you must have asked parents how they feel about the idea of face masks in schools. We know that Alberta is going to mandate this. Well, we were just about to go uh, and collect the data for the poll, and we, came, we saw the Alberta announcement. Uh, we were surprised here. We found that it, it is about 80% support for face masks for teachers and staff. And then as you go down the list uh, in terms of ages, the support wanes a little bit, but it's still the majority. So, for example, uh, 77% say we want, we want face masks for, for uh, high school kids, and then it's 73% for middle school. It's only 58% for young children in K-3. to Interesting. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Steve. Thank you, Simi. Steve Mossett, president at Insights West. They've been asking parents out there a lot of questions about how they feel about going back to school, essentially. And you heard the mask wearing is really interesting. Mandatory face masks for teachers and staff, 79% support that. Uh, but for students, it depended on how old the students were. For high school aged uh, kids, 77% of parents thought, yep, that's appropriate, should be happening. Middle school, 73%. And young children, as Steve pointed out, 58%. So it gets less as you get younger. Overall, though, it's going to be impossible for the government to please everybody with this. I think that is just the stark reality of this. Uh, you've got 27% of parents who say, I want my child back in the classroom full time. And then another 27% of people who say, nope, I don't want my child in the classroom at all. I want remote learning. And then 41% who want a mix of that. So what do you do at that point? You want to weigh in? Simi at cknw.com.